Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the letter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 and extending to verse 14. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we have heard your word read now in the presence of your spirit, we in this hour humble our hearts before this word, and we ask of you that you would make it plain and clear to our hearts what you are seeking to communicate with these words. We know that we can't understand them. We know that we can't apply them or embrace them, receive them as we ought for the transformation that's intended apart from the power of your Holy Spirit. He alone is the spiritual interpreter of this word to our hearts. Only he can shine the spotlight upon it for us to see, behold, and be changed. We come asking you to send that spirit in great measure right now as we press in to this word. We need to hear the instruction of this word. We believe that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so, Father, we come to you because our life hangs on hearing from your word. Eternity is in the balance right now. You know what we need. And so we submit ourselves to you now. Come, and through the power of your spirit, come and make known to us what it is that we need to know that we might be changed for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I dare say most of us hate it and do our very best to avoid it. You know what I'm talking about. Conflict. None of us really like it. Even those who think we do, none of us really like it puts us in awkward positions with one another. It turns our lives upside down. It usually reverses the measure of witness. 
that we've been called to in the gospel, and yet, haven't you found it's hard to avoid conflict? In fact, the harder you try to avoid it, the more you will find that it will invade your life. I've often tried to avoid it so I can speak with some experience in this matter. When I try to make everybody happy, I wind up making nobody happy. I wind up making more of a mess of things when I seek in fear to avoid conflict or seek by simply trying to win a conflict. I stir up all kinds of bad vibes everywhere. I need grace. I need the gospel. What difference does the gospel make when we come to the subject of conflict? Well, believe it or not, conflict is very often the very thing that the Lord uses to bring about profound change in our lives. In fact, no, really, I can look back over the course of my life, almost every time that the Lord has wanted to do a great work in my life and reveal something, maybe quite painful to my own heart, about myself, he's done it through conflict. I would imagine through the course of your own life, if you were just to catalog, catalog the highs and the lows of your life, you might find that in both of those places, you will find a measure of conflict. It's because conflict has great potential. It has potential for remarkable change. Many times in our lives, we won't pursue the kind of change that's needed in our lives unless it gets painful enough to do so, which is another way of saying unless conflict enters our lives. But we also know that the potentiality for good and for change in the midst of conflict, there's also a great a great potential for terrible evil in the midst of conflict. How many of us have experienced in our own lives the loss of friendships, the loss of a business associate, maybe even the loss of a marriage or a relationship to an extended family member because of some conflict that was never resolved? And even today we sit at church this Sunday morning with the recognition that there are uh, loose ends that have never been tied up in relationships that have caused tremendous pain and heartache, deep-seated disagreements and divisions. This has often been true in the life of the church, sadly speaking. You can look throughout church history and oftentimes you will see that churches that planted churches did so because somebody got mad at somebody else and left. And that's how the mission, quote unquote, went forward. Even within our own denomination, Presbyterianism, some of you who know its history knows that some of the, the split peas, as I like to call them, the many different Presbyterian denominations that are out there are caused because somebody somewhere got mad at someone and started their own denomination. It can have an incredible influence for good and a terrible influence for bad, conflict has just a lot of potentiality in one direction or another, but it will likely produce one or the other, good or bad. The question is, how do we respond to conflict? How do we deal with it when it comes? 
what will be the controlling power in our hearts that will give shape to the actions that we take in the midst of a true and real and even important conflict? Will we be full of ourselves and simply seek to win and duke it out? May the best man or woman win. Uh, will we in fear cower and simply pander to the judgments of those who are around us and at all peace, maybe even sell the truth in order, in order to simply make some ameliorating um, peace in the situation? Or, or will we have our eye bent towards the glory of God and the truth of the gospel? And will we let it have the controlling power in every single conflict that we face? That really is the question that's before us in this passage. Because in a very real sense, we have two of the mightiest men in all of church history, indeed the greatest leaders in the New Testament era, Peter and Paul at loggerheads with one another here in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Peter, the apostle to the Jews, a fisherman turned fisher of man, at loggerheads with Paul, who was persecutor of the church, now preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles, these two men who represent significant constituencies within the church of Jesus Christ in the opening decades of the advance of the church, these two men are embroiled in a conflict. Now these men have had a good relationship up to now. Don't just simply think these are two men who are alpha males gotten hold of their pride, the seeding, dissension and division within the church. We've seen that in business and politics, and yes, we've seen it in the context of church. That's not what's going on here. These are men who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who have had partnership and solidarity in their commitment to advance the gospel to as far as the curse is found. We saw back in Galatians chapter 1 verse 18 that the Apostle Paul actually visited Peter and spent 15 days with him. And in those 15 days, Peter no doubt shared with Paul the stories about Jesus' life and ministry. And Paul no doubt shared his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and the radical conversion that brought him from death unto life. No doubt they rehearsed the truths of the gospel together and left in relationship and in partnership in the gospel. Last week from Galatians chapter 2, we learned that 14 years later, the apostle Paul is back in Jerusalem. He's there with Peter, James, and John, and we're told that triumvirate, those three key leaders of all of the apostles, gave to Paul the right hand of fellowship. These are men who have been in good relationship with one another, but now things have gone sideways, it appears. Paul's not in Jerusalem. Instead, instead Peter has now come to Antioch, which means that he's gone into Gentile territory. If Jerusalem was the center of the growing Jewish church in the first century, Antioch was the center of the growing Gentile church in the Roman Empire. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's there where the Apostle Paul had actually planted a thriving congregation on his first missionary journey. Peter has come to visit Paul. He's come, he's ministering alongside Paul. And over the course of their ministry, of the duration of time that Peter is there in Antioch, we learn that he has to be confronted by the Apostle Paul. The language used here is that Paul opposes Peter to his face. 
severe language. It means that he literally stood against or withstood Peter. We learn later that he did this publicly. He says, I did this before them all. Why? Because there was a public grievance. What it is that Peter had done had now held sway over Jews that had followed him. And other Jews were following in the pattern of his behavior. We learn that even Barnabas follows in the pattern of his behavior. Sweet Barnabas, oh son of encouragement, Barnabas was even pulled aside into the defection of Peter. Would they be able to settle this matter? They need to. Because according to the Apostle Paul, this is not just a matter of preference or perspective or of liberty. This is a gospel matter. He says Peter was not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. As we approach this passage, I want to simply reflect on that phrase, walking in step with the truth of the gospel in light of the whole narrative that's unfolding here in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. What does Paul mean by that? How are we to understand it? And what implications does it have for our lives in the 21st century as today we seek to follow Christ in the way that he has called us? To explore that phrase, I want to look at this passage in three ways. I want to look first at the heart of the conflict. What is the heart of the conflict? And then I want to look secondly at the conflict of the heart. What's actually going on in the internal recesses of Peter's soul? And then thirdly, I want to look at the peace that only the gospel can bring. The heart of the conflict, the conflict of the heart, and the peace that only the gospel can can bring. Let's look at the heart of the conflict. What is it that Peter actually did here? And does it bother you as much as it bothered the apostle Paul? Verse 12 says, for before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. He was enjoying some table fellowship. But when they, that group from James, came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now there's a whole lot that is communicated right there in that verse, but there's a lot behind the instruction of that verse that we need to dig into for just a moment. To really understand what's going on, we need to understand the ceremonial law just a little bit. Theologians like to classify the Old Testament law in three ways. They like to talk about the moral law. This is the law that orders morality or orders our lives, the Ten Commandments. They also like to talk about the civil law. These are the laws that order our society. The kind of laws that have to do with speed limits and jaywalking and so forth. And then there's the third law. Ceremonial laws. These are laws for ordering worship. Uh, These kinds of laws have to do with declaring someone or distinguishing someone as clean or unclean. Language that we see in, in Leviticus 11, Leviticus 15, and Leviticus 20. These are laws that say, you know, if you touch a dead body, you're unclean and you're not fit to be in the presence of the Lord. If you have an oozing sore or a very bad case of eczema, you can't come into the presence of the Lord. You must be cleaned up in order to do so. There must be a cleansing process 
by which you are declared clean and then are welcomed once again into the presence of the Lord. Well, among those clean laws was a law regarding food. Food that you could eat and food that you could not eat. So for instance, in the Old Testament, you couldn't eat those pork sliders that you enjoy at some of our local restaurants or that shrimp scampi for the appetizer that maybe you'll be enjoying later today for all I know. Those things would be off limits according to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. If you were to eat those as a Jew, you would have been unclean and you would not have been fit to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, as we... Look at those laws today, it's very common for us to kind of scratch our heads and wonder, what was that all about? What was God trying to do and communicate within these clean laws and these unclean laws of the Old Testament? Well, quite frankly, he was trying to teach us a spiritual lesson. He was trying to teach us that in order to be right with God, we have to be clean in the presence of God. In order to enjoy fellowship with God, we have to be cleaned in the presence of the Lord. We can't be welcomed into relationship with God without the appropriate cleanliness because holiness can't abide with unholiness. Now, you might think to yourself, well, what does a sore have to do with being clean and in the presence of the Lord? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you sinned. If you've got a little sore here on your hand, it But it does mean this. It means that you're in a broken body. It means that you're in a a body that has been tainted with sin, touched by sin. And, And it means that though you may not have committed some moral grievance to be excluded from the presence of the Lord, it means that your body is not in the condition of the way in which it was designed to be. In a sense, you're fallen. And because of that, you cannot be welcomed into the presence of the Lord. The purpose of the ceremonial law was not merely to create categories of right and wrong. It was to so exhaust the people of God that they looked to a deeper and better and fuller cleansing. You see, when you actually live normal life in Old Testament times, you would become unclean. Normal activities of removing a dead animal would keep you out of the presence of the Lord. Things that had to regularly happen. What that meant was you had to long for the day when there wouldn't be clean and unclean laws that kept you out of the presence of the Lord, but there would be someone who was perfectly clean, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross would take on your uncleanness and then in victory over sin and death would give to you and credit to you his clean record, his righteousness, so that whether you have an oozing sore or not is a moot point. You can come into the presence of the Lord, not on your own record, but on the record of the one who has earned a standing for God for you. That was the point of the ceremonial laws. Now, Peter knew this. Peter Peter knew not only those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, but he knew Jesus' fulfillment, and he knew that those laws were no longer in play. We know this because of Acts chapter 10. It's in Acts chapter 10 that the apostle Peter actually falls into a trance. He's given a vision by God. He's on a rooftop there in Joppa and there's a sheet that's coming down from heaven and on that sheet are all kinds of unclean animals, birds and reptiles and so forth. And a word from God comes to Peter and the word is this, rise, eat, and kill. And Peter said, oh no, Lord, 
I've never, I've never let unclean food pass through these lips. And the Lord continued, and he says, don't call the things that are clean unclean. Don't call the things that I've now set apart and cleaned in Christ. Don't continue to abide by laws that have now been fulfilled in Christ and are abrogated. Peter, I don't want you to call it common anymore. I have set it apart. You are free in the fulfillment of Christ. You no longer have to hold to the ceremonial law. Now you can imagine that would be very difficult for the Apostle Peter. He's grown up all his life keeping these laws. And so we actually read in Acts chapter 10 that the vision comes to him three different times. It took him a while to get it. But for emphasis, God was communicating to Peter, Peter, I mean this, and this is going to be critically important. Why? Because eating with the Gentiles was something the Jews almost never did. In fact, couldn't do and remain clean. Because Gentiles ate all kinds of things that Jews couldn't eat. And if they ate the kind of things that Jews ate, they always prepared them in ways that made them unclean anyway. They didn't drain the blood in the way that they should. And they went into their house and they had table fellowship with those who would be unclean, which by virtue of doing so would make them unclean. They were to be separated out from the world. And so it was a part of the Jewish pedigree and nurture and training to be separated out from the uncleanness of the Gentiles. And now all of a sudden in the gospel, Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial laws, and they have been abrogated. And now the gospel is going to every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And he wanted to speak this directly to Peter because he knew this could become a point of division. In fact, don't we see throughout the book of Acts, and we see even in other letters of the Apostle Paul, that things like circumcision, ritual washings, food, sacrifice to idols... Those are the kinds of things that constantly were causing conflict or division within the body of Christ. It, it, was, it was this tension. It was the tension of do Gentiles who now trust in Christ, do they have to also practice the customs and religious regulations of the Jews of the Old Testament in order to be really accepted into the body of Christ? It's the whole Jesus plus stuff. It's, yes, oh, we're glad you're trusting in Jesus, but have you been told about the dietary laws? Uh, yes, we're so glad that you trusted in Jesus, but have we talked to you about circumcision? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that the Spirit of the Lord now dwells in you through Christ, but what about that ritual washing? It was the Jesus and scenario, a struggle that is rife throughout the New Testament. We see it all throughout the book of Acts and in the letters of the Apostle Paul. And we see Peter here actually falling into this trap a bit. It's the trap not so, not so much with food, but, but related to, it's, it has to do with fellowship. It says that there was a certain group from, from James that came, this this circumcision party. This sounds like a fun crowd. <laughs> Here they are, coming from Jerusalem, ready to enact the rituals of the Jewish community, teaching the Gentiles how it is that they, in a sense, are to become Jews in order to be fully accepted in the presence of the Lord and into the community of faith. And Peter, though he knew he had a direct revelation. And though he had practiced, he'd gone to Cornelius' house and preached the gospel and ate with Gentiles. 
And though he was in Antioch already eating with the Gentiles, when they showed up, he knew that this group was very kosher in the way that they ate. He knew that this group had not yet really fallen into the full implications of the gospel in keeping in step with the global extension of the welcome of Christ of the Gentiles. He knew this group was very fastidious, and when they showed up, he knew that if they saw him eating with the Gentiles, they were going to disapprove. They weren't going to like it. They were, they were probably going to look down their noses at him. Peter, you know better. Come on, you ate kosher your whole life. Why are you giving this up now? And though he had the freedom, we're told, fear encompassed him. It's really helpful to know what motivated Peter. Not just what he did, but why he did it. It was fear that motivated Peter. He, like many of us in this room, will do funny things when we're afraid. We do funny things when we're afraid. Someone who we really respect comes into the room and we would act a certain way, but we begin to act differently because we want that person's approval. We want that person's acceptance. We want their attention. We want them to look upon us in a certain way. It's that fear. It's that performing fear that often adapts our behavior in such a way that in this case is a kind of peer pressure that tightened Peter up to remove himself from fellowship. In our case, it might be the kind of peer pressure that loosens us up and leads us in a way that we would go against the moral law of God. But that's not the case here. But by Peter in his action, what he displayed was that he was willing to remove himself from the fellowship of the Gentiles out of being fearful of not being approved of and accepted by these fastidious law-keeping Jews. And so we read here, Paul says he's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. It's not that he's changed his opinion on the matter. It's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of behavior. Now that's really important to the nature of the instruction given here in Galatians chapter 2. Paul is teaching us that there is an implication of our behavior that necessarily follows belief in the gospel. The problem here for Peter is not that he was teaching heresy with his lips. It was that he was revealing heretical teaching with his life. His actions, in one sense, were speaking louder than his words. This word hypocritical actually is a theatrical word used in the first century for wearing a mask. He was someone who was putting on something or putting forward something that he really didn't believe. He was walking out of accord with his own true convictions. In other words, Paul is telling us that fear of man produces a fake. That's what it does. Fear of man produces a fake. It produces someone who's only like the people they're with in the moment. Who's constantly being pushed to and fro by whatever the consensus is by the group that they're gathered with. They don't even know who they are. They're pushed out of their convictions by simply wanting to be accepted. rather than holding unswervingly to the truth of the gospel. You see, whenever we pander to the judgments of men, rather than allow the gospel to be the center point on which we make these decisions, we will inevitably turn into hypocrites. We will, we will become whatever it is the group that we're with wants us to be. 
it's fair to say that this was a besetting struggle for Peter, I believe. I mean, let's go back to his ministry with the Lord Jesus. Do you remember under his trial and in his betrayal? There's Peter warming himself by the fire outside and, and, a, and a servant girl comes up and says, hey, weren't you, weren't you one of the ones that was a follower of, of Jesus, the Galilean? And what does Peter do? He did, no, 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 it wasn't me. He did, it, he did it three different times and then we hear the infamous cock crow. Why did he do that? Well, he was fearful. He was fearful maybe of physical harm in that circumstance, but here it appears that he's fearful of reputational harm. Uh, 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 both are an operational place for fear that developed within him a hypocrisy that seemed to indicate a kind of legalism. A legalism that says, Christ plus this will get you accepted. Rather than Christ alone. Rather than Christ alone. He didn't say it. You see, friends, you don't have to state this belief. It's a belief that you live or reveal with the nature of your life. What's the animating value by which you live? Are you animated by the priority of the gospel and so you live within the freedom and the welcome of Jesus? Or are you in the behavior showing and putting off the smell of legalism? Even indicating by the choices that you make. That kind of person comes into the room. And you have all series of judgments that rise up in your head and in your heart. This practice in this group is who you want to be with. And though these are brothers and sisters in Christ, you, you don't really like them. They don't really get it in the way that you, way that you get it. In the way that your people get it. You know, it's when we come into church on a Sunday morning and we're always just looking for the people just like us. And we're resistant to step out, people who are not like us, and, and maybe even people we don't know where we're holding subtle judgments of, though these are people who have professed faith in Jesus that presumably Christ himself shed his blood for and is welcomed into his kingdom. But in our minds, we've set up a higher tribunal for welcome. You've got to pass through a few more gates before you get into my fellowship. That's the spirit of what's happening here in this passage. Listen, it's subtle, it's insipid, and it's heinous. It tears at the fabric of the unity of the body of Christ. And it, it actually says in this passage, in Peter's case, that he walked out a step with the truth of the gospel. I want you to hear what Paul is saying here. Paul did not say, this is just this is incredibly important. He did not come up to Peter and say, listen, you broke a really bad law here. Let me, let me tell you about this law. That's not what he said. He said, your actions are displaying to all of us that you are out of step with the call and the nature of the gospel. What is the call in the nature of the gospel? Well, it is for Jew and Gentile alike. It is for every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation is welcomed into the body of Christ. And there is no other legal marker that is needed than that but faith in Christ. And if we set up something else and we've set up something over and above the commandment of Scripture, we are now following the commandments of men. That is why Isaiah 
which we read earlier in our service this morning, Isaiah 29, we actually looked at that passage because there Isaiah is saying, you are treating as God's commandments the commandments of men. That's our tendency. You know, it's our tendency to set up little tri tribunals of acceptance within the body of Christ based upon affinity groups. You know, these are the people who are the age and stage that, that I feel a particular camaraderie with. I think I'll just hang out with them. These are the people who have made similar schooling decisions for, for their children. And these are the people who vote in a similar kind of way. And we feel similarly about the sports teams that, are, that, that we root for on Saturdays. You know, this is SEC country, and they, they're, 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 they're with the right team. And I just feel a particular... And really, we come in and we're looking for anything but the gospel to connect us. That the gospel is not really the glue of the Christian community. In other words, it's just community, it's not Christian. If for something to be a Christian community means that Christ must be the common unity of those people. You can have a church and not have a Christian community. You can have a church that's a spirit of sectarianism. Uh, you've maybe been in that church that made it clear to you that you were not of the ilk that needs to be at this church. They may not have said it, but maybe they put off the aroma. Maybe their behavior showed it. Maybe you begin to realize that though I'm in, the, I'm in Christ, I'm not welcomed in this church. True gospel embrace creates a gospel culture within a church where the following in the fullness of the welcome of Christ is part and parcel of what it means to be a member here. Here at this local congregation, we want to be a people here at Cornerstone where it doesn't matter what follower of Christ walks in uh, in that back door, whether whatever ethnicity it is, whatever denominational background it has been, if they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we want them to find welcome within the spirit of this local congregation. We want to live into that welcome. Now that's really, listen, this is really important for us Reformed folk. Really important for us Presbyterian types who have, as it were, our P's and Q's, our I's dotted and our T's crossed theologically, and then we look sometimes at other denominations and people who just don't know quite as much as them, God bless their hearts, and we, we treat them like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And Jesus died for them. And they are no more or less valuable than you. In the kingdom of God, we are on equal plane. And the fullness of the welcome must be to the degree of Jesus' purchase of his people. What this means is that God is preparing us to live in his presence, in the fullness of the gospel, in his place, where every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation will be welcomed, and we will find our little sliver will be a part of the, the multitude of the people of God. If you find that other believers from other traditions and believers of different types and believers of different cultures, as you go to them cross culture, just you just don't, just don't find a fellowship with them, then heaven's going to be be terrible for you. The new heavens and the new earth, is, you're not going to find a home there because you're going to be bumping into people who you have, in a sense, never really grown to love in Christ here. Now, I trust the Lord. He'll change your heart in that if you're a true follower of Christ. 
But the practice of this kind of commitment is who it is that we're being called to here in the body of Christ, right in Galatians chapter 2. We want to walk in step with the gospel. Now, it would have been fine for the Jews to practice their kosher laws. It's completely okay for you to decide to be a vegetarian and for us to respect your vegetarianism, even though I plan on eating copious amounts of meat. Now, it's not okay for me to look down on you for your vegetarianism or to impose meat eating upon you. It's not okay. And neither is it okay for you to look down upon me or to impose upon me vegetarianism. Because what brings us together has nothing to do with food. It has everything to do with the diet of Jesus. Jesus is what brings us together. In fact, when it's the diet of Jesus that is actually the center point of our community, here's what actually begins to happen in the transformation of the heart. I'm happy to go to your house and be a vegetarian. Because it's not about the food. It's about the fellowship. And you, believe it or not, would be happy to taste a little meat with me if necessary. Or if you come to my house, I'll be happy to accommodate you with veggies only. Uh, There's a great story of a Presbyterian minister who was asked to preach for an Anglican pastor. He showed up that morning to preach and there were the vestments, the robes, the beautiful white robes and the stoles and all of the glory of the Anglican dress. This was a low church Presbyterian. He looked a little bit like me. As he got there that morning, they prayed and they were preparing for worship. And the Anglican priest said, here's the vestments. Feel free to, to, to put them on. I'll be in the other room. And the Presbyterian minister said to him, Is, do I have to wear these? The Anglican priest said, well, I don't guess you have to. And the Presbyterian minister says, well, in that case, I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to. You see the point. As long as it's not a commandment of men, as long as my conscience is not bound, as long as we're not stepping beyond the bounds of the fellowship, I can pick up clothes or take up Clothes, I can eat the meat or not eat the meat. I can be with a Jew or a Gentile. For Paul, he was able to be free. He was able to be all things to all people for the purposes of preaching the gospel that he might win some. You see, when we live with the gospel, when we're keeping in step with the gospel, we actually find joy in the, in the multitude of differences, and we can take them up or put them down as necessary. Why? For the purposes of Jesus. That's all it's about. It's about Him. It's when we get in our little fiefdoms. You know, I shop at Kroger and you shop at Whole Foods, and never the twain shall meet, you know. You know, I'm still at the rec center and you're crossfitting now, and there's just no way for us to ever meet, you know. You wear that swimsuit, and I wear this one, and you went to that movie, and and I went to this one. Oh, this is the stuff, my friends. You know it is. This is the stuff. And there is the freedom in the gospel to walk together in patience and in love. It's when Christ is our common unity 
these things become just things. Just things. And we can walk with each other in the kindness and the patience of what it looks like to live into the welcome of Christ. You see, that's what Jesus did. I told you that conflict was... Conflict is one of the ways that the Lord grows us up the most, and that's certainly been true in my life. And the reason is that the gospel at its heart is a conflict. When you look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing a conflict. You're seeing a battle between heaven and and hell. You're seeing a battle between sin and righteousness. You're seeing the wrath of God poured out in a cosmic clash upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You see an ultimate cosmic conflict taking place on the cross and it's there where Jesus in the fullness of only his capacities satisfied that ultimate conflict and thus gives us the resources by which to live in the peace that's beget from it. Do you see when you understand that Jesus is actually that person then you're able to walk in him and the freedom that he allows you to. It's friends it's hard to stay free. It takes a lot of work sometimes to stay free because there's a lot that wants to enslave you. Paul tells us here that we've got to oppose false slavery. We've got, it stands condemned when we do this. And we have to align ourselves with the orthodoxy. That's the word here for stepping in the truth. Where we get our word orthopedic. Uh, a doctor who straightens a deformed or broken bone. Uh, we want to walk in line with the gospel. And we want to then embrace the reality of conflict when it comes. Knowing that it will reveal our hearts and probably where we need to confess. And it will show us the truth of the gospel and where we need to walk. So don't avoid conflict. Don't try to just fight it out. Don't pander and compromise the truth. Engage it in the spirit of Christ. Be unwavering in the gospel and let everything else be pretty free. (laughs) And you'll find the life that is of the welcome of Jesus. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, this this is hard territory for us because it hits close to home. There's so many things we love and so many convictions that we have, many of which are so good, nothing wrong intrinsically. But Lord, you know our tendency is we want everybody to be like us. Forgive us when we have tried to make a commandment of man a commandment of yours. And we have walked out of step with the gospel. And show us how Jesus has given us now the freedom in reconciling the biggest conflict of all time. He's now allowed us to walk in the peace and the freedom that comes with so many other things that the world wants to fight about. Father, make Jesus the issue and then give us the freedom to drop all the other issues and put them in their right perspective so that we might enjoy the common unity in Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.